Sustainability is a powerful concept that is set to shape the future of business and guide the decisions of policymakers. It's also an idea that's often not fully understood and open to interpretation. And because it's often talked about within the context of business and geopolitics, it can be a difficult concept to grasp. Throughout the series, we've explored how sustainability is already making its impact felt. We've traveled across South Africa and to parts of the continent to uncover stories of sustainability in action in the education, conservation, power and healthcare sectors. From orphan rhino calves in Bumalanga to brand new hospitals in Angola, we've heard how sustainable investment decisions in boardrooms are making tangible differences in villages, towns and communities. In this, our final episode in the series, we have a conversation with four individuals who have made sustainability their personal mission. In hearing their stories, we'll discover how you, on a personal level, can also make a difference, not by undertaking life-altering changes, but by simply being more considered in your everyday thoughts, decisions, and actions. My name is Sebenzile Gambole, and this is Investec Future Impact, Episode 8. We begin this episode with a quick roundtable introduction of our three in-studio guests and our online guest in Seven Oaks, Kent, in the United Kingdom. My name is Tanya Dos Santos. I'm the Global Head of Sustainability for the Investec Group. My name is Fumani Mtembi. I'm the Managing Director of Knowledge Billy, a research development and advisory firm. I'm Farron Campbell. I'm a product manager at Ecowala. I'm Christopher Lloyd. I'm a children's non-fiction book author and founder of non-fiction publishing company What on Earth Publishing. To kick off the conversation, we wanted to put sustainability into context. Tanya has been involved in sustainability since long before it became a buzzword and has seen how awareness and acceptance has grown. But it wasn't an easy start. Well, I obviously didn't start as head of sustainability over 20 years ago because there was no such thing back then. I started in investor relations and our then chairman, Hugh Herman, asked me to do a sustainability report. I had absolutely no idea what that was. I had to go and do a bit of Googling, figure it out. Um, but essentially, I was then involved with elements of reporting on sustainability for the next about 10 years. And it was only in 2011 that I actually took up the responsibility for driving sustainability as a function. I remember I had a few mentors at the time who told me I was wasting my time. No one cares about sustainability. Our exec don't care. Our clients don't care. But I cared. So that was enough for me. And that's what kept me going. And at first it was just me raising awareness and getting people to understand what is this complex thing. We didn't even talk ESG back then. It was just sustainability. People, planet, profit, corporate social responsibility, so complex. And over the years we've shifted. There were times when our team was called the business prevention unit because we were seen as being very compliance and risk mitigation focused. Very, very slowly, not only did the team grow, but the function and the concept of sustainability has become much more about how can we work with the business units and work with clients and not against them. And what did it take to create that shift? An immense amount of tenacity. It hasn't been an easy road. There have been a lot of very lonely times. I had to do a lot of it on my own. Learning to build relationships was critical. There were lots of people who wanted to be part of that shift, but they're not necessarily 
people in high positions or positions of influence or power, but they were still key for me to get on board. You know, every single request that came my way, anyone who wanted to speak to me, a graduate who wanted input on the topic, service providers, I made an effort to talk to and respond. Uh, you think of LinkedIn these days, how many people come at you the moment you put something out. I made it a point to actually engage with them, which resulted in me being able to build up a network of people and resources that I could then rely on during this shift. Because I knew that one day the world was going to wake up and, you know, this was going to hit us. Um, so by the time it did, we were comfortably embedded with the sustainability thinking within the whole organization. Practically, what did that support from the C-suite, from senior and executive leadership actually look like, right? So it's good to have people saying, keep going, Tanya, we see the vision, but that has to be backed up. What did that actually look like? I don't think they necessarily saw that vision immediately. I think I was fortunate that over the years, there were many different people that were pivotal in helping us take the next step. Our former CEO, Stephen Kossoff, had an immense passion for the social side. So we'd been doing that for many, many years. So that was quite easy. This climate side and the environmental side was harder. And that was where I had to try and find some of those environmental champions. Tanya managed to find some champions inside the organization as well. One of whom was the former Investec chairman, Fanny Didi, who is now the CEO of Investec. At the time, Didi was the chairman of the Social and Ethics Committee. According to Tanya, his understanding and support of her mission was because of his lived reality. He had grown up in abject poverty. So it wasn't just the social side he understood. He understood not having access to available water. He lived it, not having access to power. And I think that for me was the first leadership moment where, you know, he really connected with it. I think the, the next chairman of our social and ethics committee was Lord Mark Malach Brown. And he was pivotal because he had worked on the sustainable development goals. So he brought this perspective around business and there are trillions of dollars of opportunity and financing that is required in order for us to achieve the global goals. So he was that voice talking about the business opportunities. And then the other executive responsible, Mark Kahn, has been pivotal in ensuring that this is driven throughout the organization. While ESG is something that became part of the fabric of Investec, for others, like Fumani Mtembi and her company Knowledge Billy, it's been baked in since the beginning. Geared towards achieving what they call structural transformation, the company was founded by a young, passionate, and in her words, naive team who believed in the possibilities for South Africa, Africa, and the rest of the world, and wanted to create a commercial vehicle to respond to global development challenges. Much like Tanya's early experience, Fumani's was a struggle to convince others of the validity of her goals. And, like Fani Didi's passion for social responsibility was born out of his youth, Fumani's history also informed her future. In 2009, it was very left field. It seemed very much sort of in tune with our being young and, and idealistic, whereas now I think it, it's a lot more the pragmatic path forward. For us, research was the window into what needed to be done. In fact, the very first study that we conducted was self-commissioned, so no one paid us to do it. We ran it in the community that I grew up in, in Etwatwa, which is just outside Davidson. And 
the purpose of that was so that we could rethink and, and relook at a space that I thought I knew. And it was through that process that I one started to rethink my own upbringing and what was really happening and started to appreciate that I spent my entire life leaving that community. So the bulk of my time was spent outside of it. And the same was true for my parents. And I had to interrogate why that was. And in the process, what we learned was that, you know, fundamentally, the historical design of our country was to strip those communities of economic capabilities and productivity. And so we had to make the choice then to focus on that as a question. It's still a big question. There are many paths to economic development, but we had to then choose human capital, infrastructure, and industrial development as the core themes for what would ultimately unlock development. I'm often asked, you know, why not one of those things? And it's because we work for community development and therefore we have to take an ecosystem approach. So what does Knowledge Belly do? So on the one hand, our firm is focused on the renewable energy sector. So we develop, own and operate renewable energy assets. The work that I look after is around the social meaning of, of what we're trying to do for society. We, in simple terms, conduct research that then leads to the development of innovations that are focused on human capital development, enhancing the skills of people to participate in the macroeconomy. That is supported with infrastructure development work. Broadly, it's social infrastructure, so it's power, water, and ICT in vulnerable communities. So modernizing the infrastructure to then make it possible for capable people to operate more sort of limitlessly in the economy. Finally, we look look at industrial development. And industrial development is an appreciation of the fact that, you know, capable people who live in an enabling environment need something to do and to plug into the economy. And, you know, what is typical of vulnerable communities is that they do not have economic activity. And so we develop and operate new industries in those communities. And primarily the asset class that we've been focused on is controlled environment agriculture. So we built a commercial scale hydroponic farm and are implementing those across the country with the view then to make it possible to live and work in a township or a village or a peri-urban community. Both Investech and Knowledge Billy are biggest scale examples of what sustainable business can deliver. But tech startup Ecowala wants to help everyone make a difference. Farron outlines how it goes about achieving its aims. Ecowala is a carbon footprint calculator. It is designed very much like a quiz. So the app will ask you questions about your lifestyle. We've tried to phrase these in a very simple way so that you can answer them top of mind. It shouldn't be too complicated. And then based on your responses and your averages, according to your region, we'll generate an Ecowala score, your CO2 emissions in kilograms, and a more detailed breakdown of how you score in particular categories, such as transport, eating, energy use, etc. Users are also then given badges with their score for things that they do well and are served recommendations via our blog for things that they could improve on. We're wanting to incorporate a reward structure to this. So what we have realized is that in order to incorporate incentives, you need unbiased data. And of course, as soon as people know that there's a reward or something like that at stake, they might answer differently. So we are working on a way <laughs> to automatically collect data so that you're getting real-time live data that's a true reflection of how people are actually acting. 
The value of Investec and Knowledge Billy's early initiatives in sustainability and ESG, together with other pioneers in the field, is reflected in Ecowala's findings from the past two years. Leaning into the growing curiosity of individuals on how to ameliorate their contributions to climate change, Ikawala's work has revealed some promising trends. We began experimenting and using marketing to find out, you know, how interested people really were and um, where this could go. And the results were quite impressive. We had a pretty consistent uptake. And yeah, eventually we wanted to see how South Africans compared to people in other countries. And so we launched in different regions in other countries over the next um, two years. We saw that, you know, organizations were focusing a lot more on sustainability reporting. This was becoming a big focus um, globally. And we realized that we could offer them our product to help as well in this area to help raise awareness internally with, with their employees and with clients and to help them to promote sustainability in their capacity. It's clear that the world faces many sustainability crises and the proliferation of internet search results for phrases like the impact of climate change underscores a growing awareness and concern amongst the planet's population. With that said, there is still a lot that needs to be done to navigate Earth's existential crises. English author Christopher Lloyd, creator of the book It's Up To Us, a children's terracotta for nature, people and planet, is taking a unique approach to bolstering those efforts. He is encouraging the next generation to add their voices to the fight. Based on a concept first proposed by King Charles III and based on the 13th century Magna Carta, which governed the relationship between the British monarchy and the people, Chris's book is a set of agreements on how the relationship between people and planet should be managed. He tells us more about the book's origin and mission. When I heard about it, I felt very strongly that we should try and translate these ideas into a format for children, because I believe that we can have just as much impact through children on adults as we can by trying to persuade adults to change their ways directly. I'm very excited by the idea of trying to tell non-fiction stories in ways that are accessible to young people. With this project, what we're trying to do is we're trying to activate young people so that if we can tell the story of how nature is when it's balanced and in harmony, what have people done to nature to distort that balance and to create the problems we have today? What are the problems for the planet today? And then finally, what can we do about them? And by setting a narrative in a really big historical context and doing it through images that really speak to young people, we've involved 33 artists from around the world. So the story is told through the cultural lens of people from all over the place, from China to Africa to Latin America to Europe to Siberia to Australia. And it really creates this visual sense of connectedness between everybody, regardless of their culture or their creed or their background. But the idea really isn't just to tell the story to children. The idea is to get children to ask the parents in their lives, what are we doing about it? What can we do about it? What's my school doing about it? You know, how can I help you, my parents, change the way we do things. And I think that there's a, a lot of focus, understandably, in the business world on trying to change businesses and the way businesses do business and can change consumers and the way they spend and behave. I'm not sure there's been enough focus on trying to tell the story to young people so that they can be the agents of change 
to their parents and their grandparents, because after all, who wants to be a lousy parent? So I think there's a big opportunity there. And that's really what this book is aimed at doing, activating young people to then create the taboos that we need to move the needle when it comes to adult behavior. And we have to change now for the sake of that and to get them telling them the story, not me, not governments, not businesses, not even teachers, just young people being equipped with the information they need in a manner that speaks to them, which is making it visual, which is making their language simple, which is allowing them to understand and think big and connect knowledge together so they can they can work out for themselves that things have to be different in the future. We need this other force from below to be really making the change. And so that's why this book, which is framed around the ideas of the Terracotta, which are explained very simply and very visually in the book, and hopefully will lead to an ongoing conversation between generations about how we live our lives in ways that set an example. For Chris, it's a conversation that needs to be based around a new way of how we react to the climate crisis. We need to be in the business of making new moral taboos. You know, human society has always been crafted around a moral fabric of what is right and what is wrong, not just now, but in the long term or maybe in the next life for many different cultures. And we've been very successful as a species in creating taboos that regulate behavior, that allow us to think beyond the here and now. And and if ever there was a time to create a set of new modern taboos, now is the time. We cannot allow the pollution of the planet through plastic waste, through artificial fertilizer. We cannot allow the pollution of the air through using fossil fuels. Every time a company is contributing to carbon emissions when it, it could be thinking differently, they need to be frowned upon. We need to create this sense of collective responsibility, which is something the human species has been good at in the past. So that gives me some hope. And and I guess the second thing I would say is that that nobody wants to be a lousy parent. And I think this is something that we can use to our advantage. Everybody wants to do the best for their children. We pay for the resources for education. We'll take them on holidays. We'll want to give them the best experiences. Do we want to give them a planet that's wasted that they can't even survive on in the future? You know, we need to start telling this story about how we should be responsible as parents, as adults to younger people and draw upon all those kind of natural instincts to want to be a good example and a good parent and try and see how that plays out in terms of the way we behave and the example we set for the legacy that's so important for our children and grandchildren. If you're enjoying this podcast, look out for other episodes in which we explore more about sustainability and responsible investing and discover how the future of investment is already having real-world impact. To access the other episodes in this series, subscribe to Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts. For Tanya, this mindset shift isn't just applicable to the next generation. It's imperative that all of us adopt a new way of thinking about how best to deal with the world's sustainability challenges. Tanya has her own strategy when engaging in those conversations, one that can be adopted by any of us. The first thing is not to try and argue on the science. It's incredibly complex. The lingo is beyond most of us. So I generally don't get drawn into those types of arguments. What I do find works well is everyone has their own story 
and I try very hard to then figure out how are they connecting with those two core issues of inequality and climate because everyone's connecting with them somehow. So how are they connecting with them? And if they aren't, you'll soon find that either their grandchildren are coming to them or their children are coming to them and the millennials are already fully into that. It's top of mind for them. Um, and I don't actually have to convince anyone. The whole world is convincing them. So there are skeptics out there. It's incredibly satisfying when a skeptic does change heart and comes to me and says, sure, Tanya, five years ago, I told you the clients didn't care about this, but you know what they actually do? That has been incredibly satisfying. But no, for me, it is it's definitely that personal connection that changes the behavior. There are those who want to quantify the impact and want to be able to pull up the numbers and speak to that. How do you respond while still achieving that impact? That is probably one of the biggest challenges that we face in the ESG sustainability area. In all this reporting and media, you'll notice numbers. You'll notice how many billions spent or how much time someone spent. But where we actually need to be is reporting on the impact, how many emissions saved, how many people now have access to clean sanitation and water, how many people now have access to education. So it's not just about education, it's access to education and quality education. And that's another subset of the sustainable development goals that is still being worked through. But that is really going to determine what is meaningful impact. This series has explored a lot of the issues and potential solutions related to sustainability. While some are dedicating their lives to improving our planet and the prospects of their communities, it's an inescapable fact that governments, corporates, leaders in every sphere of influence and each individual all need to play their part. For leaders of organizations who are important in the success of work of this nature and creating impactful change, what do you say to them? Especially those who have to be maximizing shareholder value. I've got bigger things that I need to be dealing with. What do you say to them? Everyone's a leader in the space. Leaders of big organizations have an important role to play. But for me, everyone is a leader. So the most important thing to do is lead by example and walk the talk. Start with the small things like bringing your own water bottle so you don't have to use single-use plastic water along the way. I'm fortunate enough now that I'm in a position where I can actually put my money where my mouth is. So I'm installing solar at home. I am putting money into the Investec Sustainable Equity Fund. Because if I'm going to invest money, I need to be living my true values. It doesn't matter where I work. That's This is my value. I, I need to do that. That's what a leader does. Everyone has a sphere of influence. So figure out what your sphere of influence. It doesn't even have to be environmental. It can be volunteering in your community. There's loads of ways that we can all lead by example in this space. That for me is the most important. Chris, your message to the leaders of the day and also the young leaders of tomorrow. We face a, a very difficult time, to be honest. And I don't think there's any point in deluding young people or or ourselves, uh, as to the scale of the challenges we face. We've got to level up and be honest with ourselves that things are going to have to change. We're going to have to actually change the whole fabric and structure of society. And to do that is going to require great charisma, great leadership, and really powerful institutions, global institutions. So we have to find ways to create leaders that respect each other and spend time together. 
you know, they come to conferences, they get to know each other on a human level. And I think the more we can create those opportunities for the leaders of the world to get to know each other as human beings, to get to know each other's families, to get to know each other, you know, as co-citizens, global citizens, then the better the chances that they will help us create solutions on a global scale. Fumani, how would you like to see the public policy space change to start reflecting the sort of personal and also collective impact that we need to be seeing as a, as a developing country? We often speak of ourselves as you know, a country that is developmental in its nature. You know, if, if I think about the state, I think we, at the policy level, it's really hard to fault South Africa. There's a reason why our constitution is lauded across the world, because it is progressive, because we have been ahead of the curve on many issues that the rest of the world is only waking up to now. So you know, there's value in recognizing that we are a progressive society and that on paper, we have a lot of good plans and good ideas. But I think the state and failing to understand truly what constitutes the locality has missed a lot of opportunities to develop the communities that are most in need of progress. So the, the construct that we currently have of the locality being a district municipality is much larger than what a, a village might be or a township might be. And that is often meant, if you look at Akuruleni as an area, the developmental focus is on Ekuruleni, the city, the, the metropolitan. State plans are around expanding the airport and, and, and. They don't really talk about what that will mean for the township of Watville. So, you know, that's just to show that there's a granularity that's missing. And I think that, you know, as we move forward, when we bring that attention to that most local level, we'll be able to be a lot more effective in delivering change. And importantly, you know, given the unfolding climate reality, we need to create resilience at that most local level. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, we would benefit from if we thought really about aligning the grand ideas and the policies to where people actually live, work and play. Then, of course, there are things you as an individual can do. Through her work at Ikawala, Farron has seen that more and more South Africans are making the changes they can in order to make a difference. I find even on a day-to-day -day basis, people are actually curious enough to want to know what their impact is. And a lot of them wanted to find out more in terms of what they can do about it. A lot of people don't know what they can do about it. They don't think that individuals have any kind of power or impact in this space. Of course, the larger industries create the most impact, but individuals still have the power to create change. So through collective actions, individuals can actually make a big impact. One of the top factors that make the most impact for individuals is reducing electricity. With some of the campaigns we ran, we encouraged people to um, try a plant-based diet for a month. So take the quiz, see how your eating score is, how you're doing in that area, and then Try a plant-based diet for a month and then retake the quiz and see how your score is improved in that space. And we had a lot of really good responses in terms of people whose emissions had been reduced by just making those adjustments even for a short period of time. Even within our team, we noticed we became a lot more conscious as well. That's something that really stood out to me through the research that we did, through what I learned, through seeing how much people cared and just learning more and more. I think we all started to try to live more eco-consciously.
the majority of people just getting on with life, they aren't really thinking about that. If they aren't doing this work on a day-to-day basis, how do we make these issues a lot more accessible outside of what is a limited framing of the SDGs? So, you know, the SDGs don't mark the beginning of time or the beginning of a concern around sustainability, but they matter and they also create an accountability framework for the organizations that ought to contribute to this. They also give us as individuals an understanding of what matters today and different things will matter over time. That's just the natural progression of history. But, you know, the point was made earlier on that it does come down to the world that we want to leave behind, the children that we want to raise and a shared and essential sense of morality. With moral clarity, I think we can be live more honest lives, live lives that are with uh, sort of not devoid of contradiction, but, you know, with less contradiction. But the institutional support, I think, makes the, the work of various organizations more possible. You know, if I'm going to fly less, it matters that other institutions support my flying less. And it's not something that on my own, I can necessarily drive. If I can't drive it in my work and I can't drive it as an individual, then it speaks to the earlier points around collective action. Then I need to become a part of something that makes the world a better place. There are ways of thinking about this at the personal, institutional and civil society levels. And I think as responsible human beings, we need to have a sense of where we plug into all those conversations and and just be accountable for the change that we want to see in the world. Chris, your thoughts on, on the individual's power to make change? If, if we get obsessed with measuring things too much, we're going to miss the point. The point is that we're all stories on a stick. That's what being a human is. It's being a, a living, breathing, walking story. And it doesn't matter how little the impact is of the little thing that I do. What matters is that people see it. What matters is that I talk about it. What matters is that I feel better about it. And then I will emanate that change, you know, like Gandhi said, be the change. So I really would encourage people not to get too obsessed with the quantification of things. And we're trying to analyze, you know, obviously, at some level, that needs to happen. But on the consumer level, on the popular level, it's about living the change and about being the example rather than measuring exactly how much of a difference we're making. I think that's really important. We'll close off the series with a comment from Fumani. We've all heard about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and perhaps because they originate from a global organization and their focus is on global issues, it's easy to see them as the responsibilities of governments and institutions. But you can contribute every day to the SDGs, and you can make a difference. If in everything that you do in your personal life and your work, you're advancing a daily personal agenda, a work agenda that is about fairness and equality, then you are contributing to the SDGs. The SDGs are not about net zero emissions. There's 17 SDGs and they talk about the environment, they talk about society, they talk about the communities that we live in, they talk about partnering as a core principle. And so they are vast because creating a sustainable world is about all these different themes. Of course, there must be accountability and an appreciation of what the SDGs are about, but the longer term accountability is to the basic cause to make the world fair and equal. That's what the development goals are about. And I think that's something we can all connect with. Thanks for listening to this episode of Investec Focus Radio's Future Impact. It's our final episode in the series. If you've missed out on any of the previous episodes, 
You can find them by searching for Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts. Please don't forget to rate us if you've enjoyed this conversation and help like-minded listeners find our content. Until next time, farewell from me and the Focus Radio team. Future Impact is presented by me, Sebenzile Ngambule, and is written and produced by Spike Ballantyne. Engineering by Aaron Mudise and Ryan Tinline at Cliff Central. The series is a production of the Investec Digital Content Team. Caroline Edie Finvake, Ingrid Booth, Linya Rosello, and Timothy Spire. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Bank Limited, an authorized financial services provider and registered credit provider.